Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before uh, we get started, one announcement that I know of, and that is that this uh, coming Sunday we'll have a short uh, congregational meeting immediately following the uh, worship service to for the congregation to approve the uh, nomination of Bob Beaver to the uh, to the board of deacons, and I think that's that's that covers Sunday. And then I'd also appreciate prayer. I'm leaving in the morning to uh, go to uh, Tucson Bible Church, where I'll be teaching tomorrow night, Thursday night. And Friday night, David Dunn will be here on Thursday night. He's he's developing a series that that uh, I know he's been been working on that he began last last week. He'll cover this week, and then there'll be uh, three or four Tuesday Thursday nights during the summer when I'm gone on vacation. So he's just going to be carrying that through. So that works out real nicely that David. Uh, I was able to come over on, on Tuesday and Thursday nights to, uh, to cover for me, and I think he does a, a really good job. So that will be, that's the announcement. I'll be at Tucson, and I'm teaching on creation. John Hintz is the pastor of Tucson Bible Church, and um, some of you met him at the conference. I've known John since I was nine, and he was 17 at Baraka Church. His parents started going to Baraka Church in 1944 when it was in the Heights. So he was he was around a long time and tells a great funny story. You'll have to get him to tell sometime about uh, drag racing pastor theme down the Gulf Freeway in 1955 when he had taken out his dad's Chevy or Oldsmobile or something. And so that's kind of a fun story. He's a crazy guy, he really is. All right, well let's have a few moments of silent prayer before we get started. Uh, get started in our study this evening, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful we can be here this evening to study your word, that we can look at the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. We see how all of the parts interconnect and intersect, how there's one united message that does not contradict itself, that flows from the initial chapters of Genesis and that come to resolution in the final chapters of Revelation. Father, as we continue our study of the kingdom and in the context of Revelation 20, we pray that you can help us to see the importance of this doctrine as it fits into the scope of Scripture and how it uh, comes out of Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament revelation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're studying the millennium, and just a quick review of the basic terminology. Uh, it's always important to get terminology down, and it never fears, never, never 
uh, it never varies no matter how many times you hear it. And some of you may say, okay, now I get to take a five-minute nap while I, we review the basic terminology. There are people who I have had in congregations who, after they hear it the 50th time, say, I, oh, I see it now. So somebody's, there's always somebody out there who needs to hear it and finally gets it and puts it all together. So we all take mental vacations in the middle of, of class. I mean, that's just standard. I see it from here, and I do it when I'm out there, because if, if a pastor is really teaching it to any degree of depth, and he's teaching a number of different, on a number of different tracks throughout the class, your mind starts connecting certain dots to something he says, and so you go off this way for about three minutes, hopefully no, not much longer than that, and you manage to find your way back, and you keep going, but you miss something. But in between, you were putting together things that uh, you have learned at, at other times, and, th- and the Holy Spirit's using that to teach you and to help form in your soul a real solid understanding of doctrine. That's just how we all learn. And then the other thing is you, there's always a few people who come in and they get a nap on Tuesday night or Thursday night, and it's probably the first time they sat down since they got up at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I also have been there and understand that, that that's just normal. You, many folks get up very early in the morning, work hard all day long, always on the go, and the first time they really sit down and just stop is when they get to Bible class. And the normal bodily reaction at that point is to go to sleep. So maybe if the, the droning of my voice enables you to get an hour of good sleep, well, that's at least you're getting something out of Bible class. Okay, we're studying the millennium. When you come to Revelation chapter 20, there's really only only about three or four things that we learn in Revelation 20 about the, the kingdom. And that has to do with, number one, the kingdom is going to be a thousand years in length. The second thing that we learn is that Satan is going to be bound during that 1,000-year period. The third thing we learn is that that uh, the resurrected saints, Old Testament believers, church-age believers who are uh, in the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, plus uh, tribulation martyrs will all be ruling and reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ during the uh, the time of the kingdom. And the last thing, we, fourth thing that we learn is that at the end of the kingdom, Satan's released and there's a worldwide worldwide rebellion, and that is covered uh, almost secondarily within these the first ten or eleven verses in the chapter. Most of what we know about the kingdom, most of what we learn about the millennial kingdom comes out of the Old Testament. The whole idea of a messianic kingdom, which is uh, how I like to refer to the millennium because it puts the focus not on its length. The term millennium just focuses on its time, but messianic kingdom focuses on its nature and its character. And, and the whole doctrine of the messianic kingdom comes out of the Old Testament. This is a, this is an Old Testament doctrine. And this is what we've covered in the last several weeks is the, the, the Old Testament background. And in the last, uh, last lesson or two, we focused on the fact that the ruler is going to be the God man 
Messiah, as that is described in, in the Old Testament. But first, let's review the terminology. The term millennium comes from the Latin word milli, which means a thousand. And before it was referred to as the millennium, it was referred to as kiliasm, or the belief in a, again, a thousand years, kilioi being the Greek word for a thousand. The early church had a mostly uh, literal interpretation of Scripture. They had some allegorical stuff in there that make your hair curl, but uh, they they tried to be literal. But they're, they're, it's it's a uh, say a, a an unexamined, unthought through literal hermeneutic. They're not asking the deep analytical questions and philosophical questions that relate to interpretation. So there's it's, it's, it's sort of a mixed bag, but primarily they understood the passage to talk about a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ that he would return with the church uh, with with the church at the uh, end of the uh, in, in a future period and establish his kingdom for one thousand years on the earth. So the view premillennialism is that historic view, also just known as kiliasm, with Jesus returning before the beginning of the kingdom, and that only dominated in the early church for about three hundred years, and then the the, uh, the bad boy of the early church, Origen, came along, and Origen is the one who who brought in the whole allegorical interpretation thing and got away from the literal text. Augustine, in the uh, early 5th century, basically uh, institutionalizes allegorical interpretation. And so from about 400 to about 1,500, so for 1,100 years, nobody's thinking in terms of a literal future return of Christ to establish his kingdom. They're not thinking of a Jewish kingdom related to the land at all. So there's no development of thought within that framework. And it's not until the Reformation comes along when all of a sudden there's this change back to a literal interpretation of Scripture that gradually, as a literal interpretation is applied first to salvation, then to the church, then to uh, Christ and other areas of Scripture, finally gets around to uh, prophetic things. And when they got around to applying literal interpretation to Revelation 20, voila, there's a literal future kingdom. It's a thousand years long. And it's Jewish in its character. And this happens in the late 1500s, early 1600s. And it's at that same time that you have the rise of the whole Puritan movement uh, in England. And the Puritans loved the Old Testament. And they would give their children the strangest names, uh, not just names like uh, patience or virtue, or but they would give them long names. Long, uh, long names like the one who battles with sin and is victorious or something like that. I mean, they really would give them very unusual names. But they loved the Old Testament, and they would go, um, and the, the Puritan divines, as they called, called them, the professors at Oxford and Cambridge, would seek out rabbis, because it was in that same period of time, or actually a little bit towards the, a little bit later in the beginning period, the mid-1600s, when Cromwell invited the Jews back to England. And they, he did that because uh, they began to realize that before God would return, restore the Jews to, to the land, they had to be scattered to every nation on the earth. And if there weren't any Jews in England, 
because they've been kicked out uh, by uh, Edward I. If there weren't any Jews in England, then God couldn't fulfill the prophecy to bring them back to the land. So by all means, let's get Jews in England so God can start sending them back to the land and Jesus can come back. And that, that was their thinking. We're always trying to help God get, you know, get the prophecy ball rolling and, and, um, and manipulate things so that Jesus will come back. But in premillennialism, uh, Jesus comes back to the earth and establishes his kingdom. Postmillennialism sees this gradual change that takes place. It's not militant. There, there are some forms of militant postmillennialism, but to be fair and honest to most postmillennialism, they would, they, the conservatives would say that the Holy Spirit gradually produces this increasing effectiveness of gospel preaching so that uh, by the end of the age, nearly everybody in the world is saved. It, it's, 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 um, very optimistic in that way. In fact, they like to call us pessimillennialists. They're optimillennialists. They're optimists and we're pessimists because we think it's just all going to go into apostasy and then Jesus will come back and they think, but they're really utopian. That's what that idea is. And, and because the millennium itself is a utopic idea. And when you blend the biblical view of a perfect future state, no, uh, of the kingdom with the secular versions that crop up along the way, which are nothing more than Christian heresies, um, then, then that's when you start getting into trouble. Marxism uh, had a, has a, uh, is a heretical view in this sense. It borrows concepts from, from Judaism because Marx was originally a Jew and then he went through a conversion to Christianity and then he dumped it all. So I'm not sure, but there's a good chance that you may see old Carl in heaven because there was a two-year period there when he was a pretty adamant Christian, and then he got rid of his Christianity. So, you know, I know some of you just just you, you just really want to make sure that there's different areas in heaven, and you're not in one of those. But, yeah, Carl may be there. See, God's grace, it'll save anybody, doesn't matter who you are. So he borrowed these ideas from uh, Judaism and from Christianity, and and then he weds it to a purely secular view of of a utopia, the workers' paradise. And of course, we all know how that worked out in in the Soviet Union. But that doesn't stop people from trying. So the postmillennial idea is that the church, the gospel, will continue its spread, permeate, and then the kingdom gradually comes in, as I've depicted there in the bottom box there. And then you have a full-bore kingdom, and Jesus comes back at the end. And then in amillennialism, which means no millennial, uh, the, the whole thing's just been spiritualized. 1,000 is a symbolic number. Uh, the first resurrection is nothing more than something that's spiritual, at conversion. And uh, the, the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus is on a spiritual throne of David in heaven. So... The, uh, we believe very firmly in a literal interpretation of Scripture, a literal future uh, future kingdom. Now, the Scripture talks about the fact that there is this future Jewish kingdom. It comes right out of the Old Testament. And in the last couple of lessons, I pointed out that there's three ways to establish this. Number one is to talk about the unfulfilled eternal covenants that God made with Israel. He made uh, these covenants. Uh, the promises were made in the Old Testament, but they're not fulfilled until sometime in the future. 
Now here we have a timeline going from the formation of Israel and the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 all the way through to the future millennial state or the dispensation of Jesus Christ, the messianic kingdom. Uh, the foundation for all of these covenants is the Abrahamic covenant, which focused on three promises, land, seed, and blessing. And so the land covenant was expanded in a real estate covenant in Deuteronomy 30, but that's not fulfilled until God brings all of the Jews back to the land, and this occurs at the time of the second coming, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 2 and 3. Then there's the Davidic covenant, which promises an eternal king on an eternal throne for this eternal kingdom, so that the descendant who reigns is going to be the descendant of David. And that means he has to be human in order to be a descendant of David. So he's going to be fully human. But because he's eternal, he has to also be God. And that's where we see that in a number of passages, such as Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and uh, Psalm 2, various others. Then there is the new covenant, which God promised to uh, make with Israel in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, where he would put the Holy Spirit within them and no one would need to teach their neighbor. This occurs at the time of their corporate uh, re, uh, regeneration, their corporate salvation, deliverance at the end of the tribulation period. And it is on the basis of that covenant that the church age is blessed. That's the reason there's the dotted line there. So the point is that the, there must be a future Jewish kingdom in order to fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to, the, to the, their descendants to give them the land, that there would be a kingdom there that of an unprecedented scope, and that in that kingdom they would be the spiritual center of, of human civilization on, on the planet. And those have not, that's never occurred yet, that's somewhere off in the distant future. So, the first point is un- the unfulfilled eternal covenants with Israel, and the second was specific promises made in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed or appointed one. And we look through various uh, scripture references, which I have up on the screen. Uh, Psalm 2, 1 through 9, specifically God says that he is putting uh, his Messiah, the anointed one, he declares him to be his son, and he is establishing him uh, over the kingdom, and he will rule over all the nations. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, it says that he's called, all these titles are given to him including that he is called eternal God, uh, the, the father of eternity, and he is called the mighty God. So the, the Messiah is a son given who is also God. Uh, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 talks about that he's a branch of, of, from, the, from the stump of, of Jesse, the father of David. Isaiah 55, 3, 11, Jeremiah 30, all these different passages will fill in the gaps about the nature of the Messiah, that he is a descendant of David, his humanity, but that he is called God. Several passages, this is recognized both by various uh, rabbis and different commentaries as well as Christians, that the Messiah is called by the name, uh, the covenant name of God, usually translated with other uppercase letters, Lord 
or in modern Jewish terminology, they'll refer to him as Hashem or Adonai, uh, based on the sacred uh, four letters of Yahweh, or uh, which is really perverted into Jehovah, which really isn't a legitimate term. Okay, so those are the first two reasons. And then the third one is the character of the Jewish kingdom, the character of this kingdom. What's the kingdom going to be like? What does the Old Testament tell us is going to be the nature of this future, this future kingdom? So I want to go through about seven or eight different key Old Testament passages with you, and you should jot these down and have these as a ready reference in your Bible so that if you get a chance to use them, you can. Now, the first is in Isaiah. Isaiah is is one of the best books in the Old Testament to read in relation to this and read it through all the way, especially the section from Isaiah 40 to 65, which deals with the role of the Messiah in coming to die for the sins, that that he was bruised for our iniquities, he was wounded for our transgressions, and the chastisement of our peace was laid upon him. And Isaiah 53 is the passage that really describes that the Messiah must take upon himself the sins of the world. And because he does that, then God will honor him and elevate him to uh, the position of, of, uh, uh, of the Messiah. So Isaiah chapter 2, now remember, Isaiah is written at a time, the same time that we've been studying on Sunday morning, in 2 Kings 14 through 16. If you go back to Isaiah 1.1, we read, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah is the key prophet in the southern kingdom. He is contemporaneous with Micah. We'll look at some passages from Micah. Uh, this evening as well, but it's during the time, the same time period that I talked about this last Sunday morning and this coming Sunday morning, we covered Uzziah or Azariah was his uh, uh, other name. Uzziah may have been the throne name, Jotham or Yotam, uh, Ahaz, and uh, and Hezekiah. We'll begin Hezekiah this uh, coming Sunday. So it's during that time. Now, if you remember, Uzziah... And Jotham are rebuilding the defenses of Jerusalem during this time. And God blesses the southern kingdom of Judah with some military conquest. They expand their borders and they uh, conquer the Edomites and they expand and regain territory lost to the Philistines in the southeastern flank down along what is now the Gaza Strip. And so this is a time of military expansion for the southern kingdom, of time when the fortifications are being reinforced, the walls around the temple are being reinforced, the walls around the city of David are being reinforced, and it is a time when they are at both at war and preparing for war. And so that's the context for reading Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 2. Now, also, it's a time of the threat, the rising threat of Assyria, on their northwestern flank. Assyria has been rumbling for about 20 or 30 years at this point. They've conquered the Syrians, 
and they're looking down at uh, <clears throat> looking down towards the south. They, and they conquer the northern kingdom during the period or during the reign of Ahaz. Uh, they conquer the northern kingdom in 722. Now, in chapter two, we get this remarkable prophecy. Now, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the Lord's house, the mountain of the Lord's house, shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now, this is a, a tremendous prophecy of the, of the characteristics of this future kingdom. And we've never seen anything like this in all of human history. First thing that is stated is the time frame. It is in the latter days or the last days. The, the last days, that terminology refers to, uh, can refer to one of two different things. It can refer to the last days for Israel. Or it can refer to the last days or the latter days of the church age, which is most of the church age. And you have to distinguish them based on context. The latter days for Israel focuses on that last seven-year time frame based on Daniel's prophecy in, in Daniel 9, uh, 23, 24, 25, 26. And also, uh, <clears throat> which is what we refer to as the tribulation, going into the millennial kingdom. And so uh, we have the latter days for Israel. This is the time when the, that kingdom is established, that the mountain of the Lord's house uh, shall be established. Now, if you go to Israel and you come into Jerusalem, and every time I've gone in, it is, it, it, no matter who you're with, it, is, it seems to always be an emotional experience for everybody as you come through those, those hills and all of a sudden you look over over the city of Jerusalem, and there's never a dry eye on the bus. I don't care who you are. It just You just can't do it. There's just something different about Jerusalem. But as you come in, you look, da- you look down, and you see the temple. You see the Dome of the Rock now, the Haram al-Sharif, and you see that down below, and you look down there and you think, that's not above everything. In fact, there's a lot of the hills and ridges around Jerusalem that are higher than the Temple Mount and and Mount Zion. But what is described here as well as in Isaiah 40 and following is that there is something that changes at the end of the tribulation period where in those earthquakes that occur there is an uplift and this mountain is pushed up and this is where the future temple uh, will be the temple described in Ezekiel chapters uh, 40 and following, which we'll get into uh, next next time. So this is where the Lord's house will be. It's it tells us that since none of this has ever happened, there is a future uh, temple that will be established there. It will be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. So it's 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 speaking of the fact that uh, topographically it is above everything. 
and all nations, literally all the Gentiles, shall flow to it. So the focal point of worship of God on the earth will be once again in the temple in Jerusalem, and all nations will focus on that future temple. Then verse 3 says, Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So there's no doubt who we're speaking of here. And he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. In other words, there is a direct communication and instruction coming from God. This implies a personal presence of God on the, at the temple again, and this was lost back in uh, about 592 or 94 when Ezekiel had his vision and saw the uh, presence of God, the uh, Shekinah, leave the temple and go out to the outer courtyard and outside the east gate and then to the Mount of Olives and then to go up into heaven. And so here there is a, re- a, a return of the presence of God to the temple and out of Zion shall go forth all the law or the Torah. So Torah will be taught, and Torah is just a word that means instruction. We try, it can mean law, but it also means instruction. So the center plate, the, the central location for the teaching and instruction of the word of God comes out of the temple. And so the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem. And then we have the statement in verse 4, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. So the the Messiah will judge between all the nations, and he will bring judgment upon those who are rebellious, those who are criminals. Ultimately, all judgment goes to the throne of the Messiah uh, in Jerusalem. And there will be no war. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. This is the true utopia that everybody tries to get to through some sort of peace treaty, some sort of uh, uh, arms control treaty, some sort of nuclear reduction treaty. All of this is just bogus as it can be because it can't happen until the Messiah is in charge. Because until there's a perfect ruler and a perfect government, you can't have a perfect administration. And until that point, there will always be wars and rumors of wars, which is what uh, the Lord Jesus Christ said. Now, the picture that's up there illustrating the um, uh, the verse, and if you could see it, the uh, it's not clear enough there, but the verse is inscribed on the base of this this. Uh, uh, this statue, actually, this was a statue that was given by the uh, Soviet Union to the United Nations uh, and has this verse inscribed on it. I always thought there's a lot of wonderful uh, irony there. And it's also inscribed outside the entrance to the uh, UN, which shows that the UN has assumed for itself a messianic role. They claim to be the organization that's going to do what Isaiah says only the Messiah can do. So the, the UN itself stands as a, as a, as a monumental uh, heresy, a, a blasphemy toward God in their, uh, in their arrogant claim to be able to bring about, uh, about world peace. So what we learn here is simply that there is going to be a future time of relative perfection on the earth. The reason it's relative is because those born during that period will still sin, will still be capable of sin, 
and therefore it will not be absolute perfection, but various other uh, uh, attributes of the of our current environment will be reversed, and there won't be a curse from sin. The Genesis three curse will be rolled back. Now we see this again in the um, uh, next set of verses that uh, that I've got up here, Isaiah chapter uh, chapter eleven. I skipped Isaiah nine. So if you're in Isaiah two, so go go to Isaiah nine. Uh, no. Yeah, Isaiah 9. We'll just touch on Isaiah 9 for a second. In Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which we went to last time to talk about the Messianic ruler, we read in in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So this will be the time when there is peace, true world peace, not world peace, as you see on the bumper sticker, but world peace peace on the planet. There will be no end and upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time and forward and forever. So that is the nature of the messianic rule. Okay, then now let's turn over a couple of pages to Isaiah chapter 11 verse verse 6. Now, Isaiah 11 is really one of those critical chapters. Isaiah 2, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, the first part of it, the first five verses, again, talk about the Messianic ruler. Uh, Verse 1 says he's a rod from the stem of Jesse, a branch that grows out of the roots. That the Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will be upon him, and he shall uh, rule and judge with righteousness uh, in verse 4. And then when you get to verse 6, it describes the characteristics of that reign. The wolf also shall lie, shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. Now that doesn't happen today. You put a young goat out, uh, tie it up to a tree to bait the lion, so that the or the leopard, so that they will come in to get the goat, and the hunter will then shoot the lion or the leopard. That's how it works today. But in the future messianic kingdom, they will lie down together. This shows that there is. Uh, some some fundamental change that takes place reversing what occurred when Adam sinned. When Adam sinned in Genesis 3 and ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then when God appeared to them in Genesis 3 and uh, outlined the various consequences or judgments as a result of that sin, there were going to be changes in the animal kingdom, that the serpent was said to be cursed more than all the other creatures, which indicates that all of the beasts of the field would have some sort of, of curse, and this brought about uh, a shift so that they became carnivorous. And Genesis 1 said that when God created the, the, the plants of the field, this was for the food for all the animals. All the animals were to eat from the, uh, from the, uh, from the fields. They were, they were all uh, gramnivorous or herbivores. But now you have... The, the fact that you have carnivores. There's been some kind of change, physiological change that's taken place among various, various creatures to enable them to eat meat and to digest, uh, meat instead of grain and so that, um, uh, this, this will be changed. And that shows that God built enough flexibility into the DNA structure of all the creatures so to handle the chaos that would come from sin. 
So there will be a reversal of that. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. I haven't seen any bears grazing lately. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. We don't have anybody doing that today because it can't, it's, it's not going to work. It's, it would be deadly. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, that never happened. Now, remember, in Deuteronomy 18, when God laid down the requirements, the test for evaluating a prophet, he said everything that they prophesied had to come true. The, the penalty was death penalty if one little thing that they said would happen would not happen. Same thing in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Those are the two chapters in the Torah that give the uh, requirements for a prophet. No mistakes. One mistake meant that nothing you said was from God. You were a phony. You were fake. You were just making it up. And so when we come to these passages that are established in books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, Zephaniah, and we have these unfulfilled prophecies, that means that they must be a future time for their fulfill- they, when they will be fulfilled, or what's the alternative? They were false prophets, false prophecies. Just throw the whole Bible away and forget about it. So they will come true at some point in the future. So Isaiah 11 gives us the characteristics of the of the uh, that time period and the changes that will take place uh, among the animals. Then we come to Isaiah chapter 30, uh, verses 23 and 24. And this talks about how God is going to multiply the prosperity of the time. He's going to bring rich fertility. Remember, if you can, back in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, when God promised to Israel, if you obey me, then I will bless you in all these ways. He lists all these ways. There will be a lot of rainfall in due season. The crops will be abundant. There won't be any wild animals to... Uh, to attack the sheep and the goats and the domestic animals. Uh, there won't be uh, any foreign armies invading, and if they do, then ten will put to flight a thousand. All of those were the promises of the blessings. Now, if you look at what's going on here, it's the same kind of thing, except it's exponentially increased. Uh, God will give rain for the seed, which you sow in the ground. The bread of the increase of the earth will be fat and plentiful. In that day, your cattle will feed in large pastures. Likewise, the oxen, the young donkeys that work the ground will eat cured fodder, which has been winnowed with the shovel and fan. It's a, it's a total picture of their uh, prosperity. So what we've learned is in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, there's not going to be any war. Now, that's not fulfilled at any time in the Old Testament, the time of Uzziah. The time of Ahaz, uh, Ahaz is just basically made a, a, a vassal, a slave of Assyria. Uh, Hezekiah gets pinned up um, uh, like a canary in a cage by, uh, by Sennacherib, and then God destroyed the army of Sennacherib in an incredible miracle when he sent uh, uh, the angel of the Lord to wipe out or kill the entire army. And then in Isaiah chapter 9, we learn that it's going to be a rule of peace again. Isaiah chapter 11, that it is a, a time of 
where the, there's not going to be hostility among the animals. And Isaiah chapter 30 talks about agricultural prosperity. Isaiah 42 comes in the servant section of, uh, of Isaiah. Behold, the servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights, talking about an individual. This is not talking about uh, the Jewish nation as a whole. This is talking about the, an individual. He is the elect one. He is the Messiah, the one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. Notice, who's speaking here in 42.1? This is a great passage. Who's speaking? It is God the Father. It is Yahweh. It is uh, uh, Elohim is speaking. And he speaks about his servant, the Messiah, who we know is going to be called uh, the father of eternity the, or, uh, and, and the mighty God. And what's he going to do? He's going to put his spirit upon him. There, there's the Trinity right there. Who says the Trinity is not in the Old Testament? Here you have the you have God speaking. You have the servant who is the uh, Messiah, who is his son. And you have uh, the spirit who is, uh, we believe, the Holy Spirit. So he will bring forth uh, justice to the Gentiles. So it's a time of uh, worldwide uh, justice. Okay, all of those passages take us through Isaiah. And then we come to one other passage in Isaiah, and I didn't put this up on a slide because it's a lot of verses. Uh, at least I don't think I did unless it got, nope, didn't, it's not out of order. Okay, look at Isaiah 65. This is another one of those uh, great passages that comes uh, describing the, the future. Isaiah chapter 65. Okay, let's start in verse 17. Now, the speaker again is the Lord. He says of a future time, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Now, this isn't the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21. But he uses that same terminology to speak of the complete uh, renovation that must take place in the land of Israel. Israel is going to get decimated. It gets clobbered by the Antichrist and the world powers in the tribulation. And it is when the Messiah comes back to rescue them that they will be delivered. And then God is going to renovate. And if you look at all of the other judgments that take place in Revelation, the seal judgments and then the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, the whole earth gets hammered. The whole earth is, is almost becomes uninhabitable. And so God is going to have to restore the earth at that time. Now it's not a new creation, it's just a renovation, an overhaul that takes place before the millennial kingdom again. So God says, behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Uh, everything prior to the establishment of the millennial kingdom is going to be um, is going to be basically forgotten because of the wonder and the peace and the joy and the happiness that exists in the messianic kingdom. Verse eighteen: But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Now, if you look at those passages we studied in Zechariah twelve how the Gentile nations will come in and destroy Jerusalem, then this has a tremendous uh, significance here because there's a uh, obviously a renovation of Jerusalem. 
I'll rejoice in Jerusalem, join my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her. And the voice of crying, which obviously means that prior to that, there was much weeping and sorrow and, uh, and crying and much grief. And then we see that lifespans will be much longer in this, in this kingdom in verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days. In other words, infant mortality will be unknown. Uh, and no child is going to live just a short time. Uh, but they will live many, many years. And then, uh, in contrast, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. Nobody's going to die early. There's no premature death. Nobody's going to be dying at, at um, uh, 60, 70, or 80. They're going to live way beyond that. For the child should die 100 years old. And what that means is that Lifespan is going to be so long. When you think about the lifespans of Abraham, the lifespans of those prior to the flood, they live to be anywhere from 885 years to 965 years. So they lived a long time, almost a 1,000 years. And what this means is that when you're living to be a 1,000 years, when you've lived a 100 years, that's like just being an infant. You're just barely getting started. That's like in, in terms of our present life, that's, that's only 10% of your lifespan. That's, you're, you're still just a, just a child. You haven't even gotten started yet. Now, m- most of us, when we get to 80 or 90, we can't imagine what it's going to be like to live to 1,000, but, but you won't, that's because our bodies and our minds deteriorate from, uh, from the corruption of this world now, and, and that won't be the case. So, so when you're 800 years old in the Millennial Kingdom, uh, you're going to have the youth and vigor and, and of, of, of a 20-year-old or a 25-year-old. So the child shall die at 100 years of old. In other words, somebody who lives to be 100, if they were to die at 100, they would be thought to have died very, very early, as if they were just only a child. Um, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. And uh, this verse indicates that if someone has not um, reached salvation by that time, then they will thought to be, uh, to, to be coming under judgment. doesn't mean that they, they, they don't live beyond 100. Uh, verse 21 goes on to say, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build. And another inhabit. In other words, you're not going to spend your life building something and then die prematurely and let someone else enjoy it or lose it to the bank or in a, in a recession or depression or something like that. Uh, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble, for they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with him. Uh, so this is the characteristic then of the, of the kingdom. And then the last verse, verse 25, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food, uh, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So again, there is a reiteration of the fact that the curse among the uh, among the animals has been lifted. All right, let's go into uh, Jeremiah. Next next book over. Jeremiah is uh, Isaiah was in the seven hundreds, 
uh, early 600s, and uh, he uh, prophesied about the coming of Babylon. Jeremiah saw it. He also prophesied and warned against it, and he uh, was the prophet of doom, the prophet of judgment, also called the weeping prophet because nobody listened to him because they were all uh, living as if everything would just somehow become normal and that... um, uh, that the word of the Lord was something you could ignore. Jeremiah 31 talks about the remnant of Israel that is saved at the time that they return uh, to the land. And in Jeremiah 31, verse 12, we read, Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, uh, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and the herd, their souls shall be like a well-watered garden, and they shall sorrow no more at all. Now, that's very reminiscent of Revelation 21, that there'll be no more uh, pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. The old things have passed away. And so now that promise is preceded by the promise in verse 8 that God will gather uh, the, the uh, Israelites from the ends of the earth and bring them back to the land. Verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off. He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. So it speaks of that future regathering of of the nation. And then later later in the chapter is when we have the description of the new covenant down in verse 31. Okay, then let's go to the next book, Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel, also a prophet whose lifespan overlapped the final days of the uh, of, of the southern kingdom as well as the, the exile. And he speaks of peace during the time of the during the time of the kingdom. Starting in verse twenty five. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. See, that's just like back in the Mosaic Law. God said, if you obey me, I will, uh, the wild beasts will not ravage the land. So I will, um, uh, verse 24, actually, if we go back one verse, he talks about the Davidic king. I will be, I, the Lord, will be their God, my servant David, a prince among them. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them, I, I will make them in the places all, of, all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in the land, and, and that's never happened, and that certainly isn't true now. They shall be safe in the land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Now, then we'll skip down to uh, one of the uh, minor prophets. We'll go past Daniel, Hosea, uh, Hosea, Joel. We'll come to Joel. We've been here a number of times. Just looking at chapter 2. Uh, verse 21 and following uh, focuses on this kingdom again, the Messianic kingdom. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done marvelous things. 
Do not be afraid, you beasts of the field, for the open pastures are springing up. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their strength. Once again, agricultural fertility and prosperity. They never got it from Baal or the idols, but they get it when they are submissive to God and worship him and him alone. Verse 23, be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain. Uh, in the first month, the threshing floor shall be full of wheat, the vat shall overflow with new wine and oil. Um, in other words, a tremendous, a tremendous prosperity, much more so now. You know, Israel today is very prosperous. It has one of the best economies in the whole world. Um, uh, Dan Sr. has written a book recently that's called uh, The Startup Nation, which is a great book on the economy of Israel and how it's impacting the rest of the world and how the rest of the world is being blessed by the economy of Israel. And there are more startup companies per uh, per capita in Israel than any nation in the world. And chances are that the uh, the cell phone that you have, that that technology was invented uh, in Israel and a lot of other things that you use every day was invented or got developed in uh, in Israel, but it's going to be even more than that in the millennial kingdom. This is just sort of a just a a very minor foretaste of that uh, future blessing that will come during the kingdom. And God promises in verse 25 that He will then restore uh, to them everything that that has that had been lost and that they would eat in plenty, be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord. And then they would know, verse 27, Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God. There is no other. My people shall never be put to shame. And then we go to the next book, to the right, uh, Amos, or Amos, chapter 9. And in chapter 9, we have again a statement of the restoration of Israel especially in verses uh, 11 and following. Verse 11 talks about the uh, restoration of the tabernacle of David, that the house of David will be restored, that they will possess the remnant of Edom, all the Gentiles uh, who will call by my name. And then verse 13, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows seed, the mountain shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. All of these are metaphors describing agricultural growth and prosperity. And in verse 14, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. And they shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. Now this comes on, this is not talking about the restoration today. This is but a foretaste of the future because this comes when the tabernacle of David or the house of David is restored and you have a Davidic king ruling over the nation in the future millennium. So this isn't the present restoration. It is the future restoration at the time when God brings all of the Jews back from where he has scattered them. And then we come to Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, and this is our last uh, last passage in our little tour through the prophets on the future kingdom. Micah chapter 4, verse, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days, same time as Isaiah 2. Remember, Micah is writing at the same time as Isaiah. 
It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house. Doesn't that sound familiar? Almost identical verbiage to Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Uh, to the house of the God of Jacob, he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth in the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's almost identical verbiage to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Going on, he shall judge between uh, many peoples uh, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts is spoken. It's a time of perfect uh, perfect peace. And all people will walk in the name of the Lord God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so as we look at these passages and go through these verses, we see that this the, the millennial kingdom that we talk about is not a Christian concept. It's not a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept. And then when we get into Revelation 21, we learn only those four things that I mentioned earlier. We learn that it's going to be a thousand years. It just, that's sort of the prelude to eternity, which is the creation then of a literal new heaven and new earth, uh, that Satan will be bound during that thousand year reign, that it will be a time when the resurrected saints rule with the Lord Jesus Christ and then it will conclude with a rebellion against him. So next time we'll come back and look at the spiritual life during the tribulation period, I mean during the millennial period, and look at the uh, millennial temple and what's involved there and address the whole question of the restoration of animal sacrifices. Why are there going to be animal sacrifices in the millennial temple, especially if the Lord Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins and that payment has been made, how come there are going to be sacrifices in the millennial temple? What is that all about? So we'll look at that uh, next time, and I see that will be one lesson, two lessons, then Great White Throne Judgment, and that will wrap up Chapter 20, and then we have two chapters left in Revelation. I think we're going to finish before the end of the year end of the summer, not just the end of the year, probably be before the end, end of the summer. And then we'll go in a totally different direction. So let's uh, bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study uh, these things this evening and to uh, uh, be reminded that uh, there is a master plan, and that master plan has Israel and Jerusalem at its uh, center point and that you will eventually restore the Jews to the land and restore uh, the land to Israel and the kingdom to the house of David, and it will be uh, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits on the throne of David in Jerusalem, ruling over the earth, and that this it will bring about a fulfillment of all of these different prophecies. Father, we thank you for the fact that as we read these things, we are encouraged because we see that you are the God who controls history, and if you control the breadth of history and the depth of history, you control the details of our lives as they fit within the scope of history. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.